0: Exodus 18. So I'll just give you a little update on half the chapter before I read you the second half of the chapter. So God raises up Moses to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. And it's through supernatural means, right? A miraculous deliverance out of slavery. There's no possible way that the Israelites could have defeated the greatest superpower on the planet, which was Egypt at the time. But God takes this little tribe of of slaves who cried out to him. He raises up a spirit-anointed deliverer and then through miracles brings them out of this great nation and then guides them through the wilderness and feeds them supernaturally with manna. And then in, in 18... Moses' wife's dad, so his father-in-law, comes to visit, and the first half of the chapter is Moses just explaining everything to Jethro. I know this does sound like we're about to shoot accidentally and strike oil and then become filthy rich. It's not that. It's a Bible story. Yeah, doesn't it make you think? Doesn't it make you think of that? (laughs) Then one day he was shooting at some food and out come the ground came a bubbling. Okay, oil that is, Texas tea. No, it ain't that, it's a Bible story. Jethro's not a redneck, it's his father-in-law. So Moses tells Jethro everything the Lord did and he's like, wow, this is amazing. And he says, I'm going to worship this God, this is the real God. So he sacrifices to the Lord and he gets in on the deal of covenant with God. And then we read this in verse 13, the next day... Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other, and they waited before him from morning until evening, and when Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, what are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do all this alone while everyone stands around you from morning until evening? Moses replied, because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me and I'm the one who settles the case between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. Verse 17, this is not good. You're gonna wear yourself out and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me and let me give you a word of advice and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to him. Teach them God's decrees and give them his instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives, but select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10 And they should always be available to solve the people's common disputes, but have them bring only the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures, and all these people will go home in peace. Moses listened to his father-in-law's advice and followed his suggestions He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. And these men were always available to solve the people's common disputes, and they brought the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller matters themselves. So Jethro watches what Moses is doing and he says it's not good you think that you're doing everything you can and you're being diligent and you're and you're working hard for God and for the people but you're stupid. Is that a short is that a fair? Why are you dumb? This is an age-old proverb work what? Not harder. Work smarter, not harder. That's essentially what he says. And he says this, you got three things I want you to do. Number one, Moses, I want you to first intercede for the people. Why did you get here? Why are you even here right now? Are you here because you're a great leader? Are you here because you're a great people, Moses? No, you're here for one reason and one reason alone. You are here because the Lord is with you. You are here, the only reason you're standing here as free people is because the Lord's favor is on you. The Lord sovereignly delivered you. And if you read this story of Moses, there are times when Moses can't go on, but then there's times when the Lord doesn't want to go on. There are times in this story where the people's rebellion and grumbling and hard hearts and lack of gratitude ticks God off to the point where God says, I think I'm done. Let me start over with you, Moses. I'll make you like a new Abraham. We'll make a new people from you. And we're just going to kill all these fools. And Moses says what? No, God, don't do it. Please, God, don't do it. Don't do it. Everyone will hear about how you failed. Everyone will hear the story about how you were not able to bring your promises to pass with these people. Moses, intercessions, save the people time and time again from their own sin. And Jethro comes and he says, look, you think your job is to stand there and sit with the people and bring your wisdom to each case and work so hard. No, 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 no. Your main job is not what you can do for the people. Your main job is to pray for the people so that the Lord can do what only he can do. And you wouldn't be here if it weren't for the goodness of God already. Your main job, Moses, is prayer. And anything that takes you away from prayer risks the favor of God by which this whole people live. You feel that? Anything that takes the place of prayer, that takes us from the place of prayer, takes us from our highest priority. Because we didn't get here by human strength and human wisdom. We got here by grace. And grace is poured out on the humble. And God resists the proud. And the surest sign of a humble people is a people who are seeking Jesus in prayer. And the surest sign of a prideful people are people dependent on themselves, their insight, their wisdom, their understanding, their strength. So the first thing he says is don't neglect praying for these people. That's your main job. And your second job, you could call it preaching. You could call it teaching. Your second job is you know what God has said. Teach them what God has said. Tell them what the word is. Tell them what the commands of God are. Explain how God calls us to live. Because God in his love gives us his law so that we can see what life is meant to be. We can learn several ways. We can learn by screwing up our lives and then listening to the Lord, or we can listen to the Lord. Right? Right? We can pay the stupid tax or we can let other people pay the stupid tax because the Bible's been written from a whole bunch of people who paid the stupid tax and some people who got it right so that we don't have to ruin our lives to learn some simple things. We can incline our ear and learn wisdom and get a heart of understanding. And where do we gain a heart of understanding and where do we gain wisdom? His word is truth. So Moses has a second job. His first job is to be in prayer for the people not in the tent of meeting with the people, solving their problems, but in the tent of meeting with the Lord, bringing down the favor of God on the people because God's the one who changes hearts, enlightens minds, and guides paths. But And the second thing he's to do is not be in their lives telling them how to live individually as though they have no wisdom of their own, but rather in a public context, teaching them the word, trusting the Holy Spirit, can take that word, make it stick, and give them application on their own. And then he says one more piece of advice. I wrote the word delegate here. My handwriting is deteriorating as the list goes on. Delegate to godly, capable men matters that are common daily work. The actual daily work goes to the people to be governing themselves. Only only listen to the big cases. Don't micromanage the people. Delegate to trustworthy, capable leaders. So those are those three pieces of advice. And he takes the advice. Now, interesting, you would think, oh, you know, oh, delegation is for the lazy. He's all hiding off, seeking Jesus by himself because he's lazy. Teach, he only wants to teach because he likes to hear the sound of his own voice. You see how the devil twists up all this stuff? No, 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 no. This is what it's supposed to look like for him to serve the Lord and serve the people well. This is coming from a place of saying, You want to burn burn Moses out and the people out at the same time? Because at the end of a long day, you're still waiting in a line? No, 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 Jethro says. You think you're doing it right. You're actually being stupid. If you use wisdom, you'll be able to go to bed at night and sleep. And the people will actually be better served. Fast forward to Acts chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. A couple of reasons I find this exciting. Have you ever, you ever noticed where someone in the New Testament got what they're telling you in the Old Testament? And I, I have this conviction about the Bible that the Bible is the Word of God. And that means several things. The first thing it means is that as the authors of the scripture were writing it, the Holy Spirit inspired what they wrote. But that's not all it means. When I say the Bible is the word of God, I also mean this, that as people read this book, the Holy Spirit also inspires it. Otherwise, it would have been great benefit for the original authors, but not much for us. Because it takes God to reveal God. Flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So if this is to become the word of God in us, we need more than a doctrine of how it was inspired when it was written. We need a doctrine of a God who still speaks, a God who still breathes, a God who still inspires, convicts, reveals himself actively, and makes written word, living word, again. So it's fun to me when I look in the New Testament and I see how these guys who walked with Jesus read their Old Testament faithfully so that when a challenge came up in their life that they didn't know how to solve what they had read from the Bible was brought back to their memory by the Holy Spirit and it gave light to their path and it unlocked something that they couldn't see in themselves. I think it's fascinating how quickly we turn from the Bible to secular help When the and I'm not saying it's ever wrong to receive God's grace through a non-Christian source. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is I think we're so quick to assume the Bible is a boring, old, irrelevant book. I've heard Christians say this stuff to me the Bible's old, outdated, uh, Back, it's, it's, it's morally regressive, it's, it's scientifically ignorant, it's a, it's a boring book written by dead people who are foreigners and I don't know what it's about. And I'm going, guys, you need the Holy Spirit. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need to, you, if, once you know you're in Christ and this is the book that tells you who he is, The apostles didn't have our New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament, right? So the only Bible the apostles had was the Old Testament. And they only preached from their Bible. So they only preached from their Bible, which was an Old Testament. And what did they preach? They only preached Christ from their Old Testament. And I hear Christians saying that the whole Bible is essentially boring, and I'd rather listen to a podcast or sing. And then a lot of Christians even saying the Old Testament is irrelevant. Since we're not in that covenant, it's no longer relevant. I'm not under the law, so I don't need the Old Testament. Guys, the, on, the, the, the dudes who wrote your New Testament only read the Old Testament and all they preached was grace, Jesus, cross, blood, covenant. From that Old Testament. So they were, okay, I'll just read. Acts chapter 6, as the believers were rapidly multiplying, there were rumblings of discontent. More people, more problems. So, does that mean less people, less problems? <laughs> okay, let's not go there. But I, I, sometimes we think, oh, if we could just get back to these these days in the book of Acts, oh, I wish I could get Back to those days. You mean the days when they didn't have air conditioning? And when the mosquitoes bite you and you get malaria, you just die? You, you, yeah, but what was going on in the church? What was going on then in the church is going on right now in the church, guys. There's no good old days. There's faith in any generation makes, makes this original flame available to us right now. The same Jesus, same Father, same Holy Spirit, same gospel. There's no good old days. If you were there, you wouldn't have known you were in the good old days you would have thought you were in hard days that required you to walk by faith, involve temptation, opportunity to be sinned against and forgive and suffer through like everyone else because there's no suffer-free zone for any generation. I know we imagine that, don't we? Oh, if we could just get back to the good old days. Not supposed to get back to any good old days. Their days were hard. The good stories that we celebrate were the hard things where God showed up. It's like we want the testimony, but we don't want the test, right? We, we want the resurrection, but we don't want the cross. And we want the revival, but we don't want to build an altar. Because revival doesn't come because we went to a conference and had hands laid on us and someone and we spoke in tongues and then it was all from then on out. Because then you go home with your undisciplined life and the assurance and the power you felt in that place leaks out unless you build an altar, of discipline, daily, with stones that are known to you, with sacrifices that are known to you, that are unique to you. To keep the fire going, right? It's famously been said, God lit the flames on the altar in the Old Testament, but it was the priest's job to keep the flames burning. So we want their flame, but we don't have to build our own altars? Come on, guys. Like, so let's just dispel the myth of the good old days. They are not real. We build good days now, and they hurt when we build them, and their work as we build them. When you say things like, it's not supposed to be this hard. Well, sometimes you're right, like Moses, it isn't supposed to be that hard. And sometimes you're wrong. And yes, it is supposed to be this hard. You're suffering like every other Christian of every other location and every other generation. It takes Holy Spirit wisdom, doesn't it, to know the difference between Is it supposed to be this hard? No, you're being stupid. Work smart, not hard. And is it supposed to be this hard? Yes, because this is the cost of building an altar and putting your whole self on it so that the flame keeps burning. You hearing me? Okay, so as the believers were rapidly multiplying, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers, because there was never any racism in the history of life until the United States, the Greek-speaking believers complained about... The Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so much for good old days, right? We're going to end it in our generation. Well, we're going to try, and we should try. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. All right, let me just stop. Is there something wrong with running a food program? Are they insulting food programs? No. Are they against it? No. How did this even come about? As the Spirit would come upon people and then Jesus' would, was lordship would be revealed, because that's the point of the Spirit coming upon us, right? To, to, to unpack to us the glory that is Jesus. So as Jesus is unpacked and their hearts go, <gasps> people would, would very often become convicted of how they have spent their whole life accumulating stuff. Oh my word, I've just all I've done with my one life is accumulate stuff. All I've been doing is seeking myself, me in charge of my life. That's the whole my life's just revolving around me, whether people like me and my reputation and what do I have and whether I'm successful and well, all this stuff. And so someone like who we know as Barnabas, when he gets in on this kingdom thing, he's so overwhelmed and the spirit moves in his heart and reveals Jesus to him. He goes, "Oh my goodness." He takes a piece of his land He sells it, takes the money, and he lays the money at the apostles' feet. Now, what do the apostles do with this money? They buy food and they give it to the hungry people. Okay, so that's how they got here. And the more people got saved, the more people became generous, the more people they had to be responsible for, but also the more the practical work of caring for people's physical needs began to feel very overwhelming to them. And what once was a little prayer meeting that was 120 people fixated on Jesus now has developed into this organizational thing that's bigger than them and practical daily tasks. It's like, dude, I got into this to preach. Now, how is it that eight hours of my day is now being spent not not in the presence, not in the word and not explaining people who Jesus is, but rather dealing with squabbling widows over whether or not they got in food, the food line thing. How did we get here? It's called the Peter Principle. That in an organization, if you're successful, you'll continue to be elevated and then very often you'll get elevated beyond your, where you're actually fit in the organization. And so you like, you might be really good at sales, but because you're so good at sales, they might eventually put you in charge of management and you're horrible at management. And so now you have someone who's terrible at management in charge of everyone who's bad at things that they would be good at. Because people are actually unique creatures. And these, these, these apostles are like, how did we get here? How did we get away from the thing we were, we were trained to do by Jesus? So as we apostles should, should spend our time teaching the word of God. Not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will give them this responsibility. And then we apostles can spend our time in what? Prayer. And teaching the word, it's almost like they read Exodus 18. In fact, I about guarantee it. You know how at one of the Holy Spirit's jobs, Jesus said, the Spirit of truth would come and he would bring to remembrance what I told you and will lead you into new truth. One of the reasons it's so important to me that, that we develop a personal relationship with our Bibles. Is instead of going, did I read this today and was it so meaningful? Oh, I had feelings. Oh, my word, I had feelings. Okay, I don't care if you had feelings today. I cared that you got some word in you and you spent some time meditating on it, talking to God about it, looking at the details of it, and then moving forward. Because once it gets in, now might not be the day it's relevant, but one day it will be the right word for the right time. There's a proverb that says, like, a, like apples set in gold, like a, little, like a little golden apple, like in an earring, just, just so perfectly spaced by the jeweler. What a... The apt word, the right word at the right time is like that. The right word at the right time... Getting, getting so familiar in deep with this book so that when these apostles are facing a problem, they, d- they don't know how to solve. They're going, something's wrong. My life's out of... Like, you would think that everything's great, right? You would write home to the denominational leaders and you'd be like, 3,000 got saved. This is awesome. But they're actually pulling out their hair and they're super stressed out. I think it's funny. Like, you know, you look at some successful person who's doing what you're doing for a living and you think oh man I wish I had their life but if you had their life you don't know you just don't know you think you know but you don't know the grass is always greener on the on the other side but then you realize the reason it's green is because it's over a really leaky septic system (laughs) you don't know and then the builder, like then the city comes in and says, no, you have to redig a new septic system and you have to do a whole thing. I've never, we don't have anyone who had to do that in our church sitting right there. <laughs> so they, they tell them, guys, our success has really been hard and I'm stressed. I'm, um, I feel off mission even. This isn't right. But how do you complain about, you know, we're doing good stuff. Why, why, it's good. It's good stuff. In fact, It could be somebody else's perfect will of God. It could be somebody else's calling, but it's not our calling. And it's like, this is good, but this is best for us. And if if we're doing all this good stuff instead of what's best, it's actually going to harm the whole church. It's going to harm the whole church. I'm going to burn out. I'm, I'm, I'm risking getting bitter. I'm risking getting resentful. Now, if I'm doing something that I don't have joy in doing, then I'm keeping track of other who didn't help me. It's just, it opens a lot of temptations for fleshy stuff to come in. And so they go, you know what? We got this story here in our Bibles where this, this uh, rich redneck from Kentucky, Jethro, no, that's not right, where Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, has unbelievable wisdom to say, look, you got three main jobs, Moses. And your first one and your most important one is the one that looks like the least important. The one that looks like it's accomplishing the least. Because when you pray, it doesn't look like you've done anything. God's invisible. And all you did was say words. But it's the main work. Because if you lose divine favor, you lose everything. If we lose the presence of God, we lose everything. There was a time in Exodus 33 where God says, I'm going to send you, but... Just going to send you with my angel because you guys really tick me off, and I think that if I'm too close to you, I might kill you. <laughs> and Moses says, I disagree. I think that being close to you is the greatest thing to ever happen to me. And I think, God, that being close to you is the greatest thing that could ever happen to anybody. And so I'm not going anywhere. I refuse. And he throws a little Moses fit. I ain't doing it. I'm not going anywhere unless your presence goes with us. Because it's your presence alone that makes us a different, unique people on the face of the earth. It's your presence that marks us as your special possession. It's your presence that creates the aroma of something different than all the other nations of the world. Your presence is the main thing. It's the primary thing. It's the greatest thing. This thing that looks like It's not getting anything done. It's just wasting time is the main thing. It's bestowing not just on the one praying, but it's bestowing on those prayed for. Graces you don't even know. Have you ever been walking through your day and it's going terrible and then suddenly your mood shifts and you go, I think someone prayed for me. And then you find out they did? I have We just don't, have you ever been walking through your day and things are going great and then all of a sudden it gets really bad and you're like, I think someone's cursing me. I have. There's power, guys. There's a spirit realm that like we don't see, but it really affects the visible realm. So they say, we're going to be in the presence of God, seeking God we're going to be hearing fresh words from God. We're going to be meditating on this word and then we're going to come out and we're going to share with the, with, the, with the people of God who Jesus is, what he has said, how life works. And we're going to delegate this other stuff, which is good stuff. It's somebody else's best stuff, but it's not our best stuff. It's, it's somebody else's top priority, but it's not our top. Actually, everyone's top priority should be number one, by the way. Your number two might be different, but your number one, come on. The same spirit releases all the different gifts, right? By one spirit, we have all received some kind of gift for the common good, which that tells you something right there. If every single believer who has the spirit has gifts that are not for their own sake, but are for the common good, then, then how could it be that they could ever fulfill their calling apart from the people of God? If you're an essential part of the body of Christ, then how could it be God's will that you not be a part of the body of Christ? But the fact that you're all in love with Jesus makes you then come out different. We all go into the same prayer meeting. we all come out facing a different direction with a different thing that we want to excitedly talk about and tell others, "You know what would be so amazing?" You get, you get me and I am start talking about teachings and preaching and prayer meetings and revival services and classes and curriculums and videos and intensive prayer, inner healing, counseling things and like, that's my jam. That does it for me. You get Carl in the prayer meeting, he comes out talking about evangelism. He comes out talking about the lost. He comes out talking about getting people broken free of addiction, people who don't know they're loved and shame getting broken off of them. People who've never set foot in, in the door of a church, encountering Jesus or people who've been so hurt by church that they've been de-churched, coming back in love with Jesus and being reconnected to a healthy body. That's what's gonna happen to Carl whenever he gets filled with the Spirit. He doesn't get, you know, like, he's not, he doesn't go, you know what would be great, Tim, I want you to preach a sermon series on these following things. It activates his, his calling, not mine. If you have a hospitality gift, you'll come out of prayer meeting thinking how, who you can have over for dinner. If you have a gift of helps, you'll come out of prayer meeting looking for someone to serve. If you have the gift of leadership, you'll come out of prayer meeting with dream and vision and strategy for the whole organization. How are we tracking? Okay. I got to finish this part so I can say the other stuff that I want to say. So they say, just pick some random people. It really doesn't matter who you pick. Oh, they didn't say that? Well, it's just the food ministry. It's not that important. That's not what they said at all, is it? What were their high qualifications to give away food? Well-respected, full of the spirit and wisdom. They, They wanted to see spiritual depth. Don't just pick random people who are willing to sign up. Well, I'll do it. Sure, I can do it. No, 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 you want the best people to represent Jesus in serving and giving away food. So who'd they pick? They picked a bunch of dudes who had Greek names. They were Jewish, but they had Greek names. Why? Because these were Greek widows that were saying, hey, wait a minute. How is it that I'm still an outsider? We Mennonites don't know anything about that. That We love you the same, even if your last name's not Yoder and Swords and Trouber and Miller and, and all that. It's a little little joke there. It's easy to feel like an outsider. Now, if I was Dutch Reformed, there would be different last names. But the same problem would still be true. That it's, we know this, right? It's easy when you come into a group that has long-standing ethnic, cultural stuff to feel excluded, and not just feel excluded, to actually be excluded. Sometimes it's hard to get in and they had the same problem. So they addressed it by saying, we're going to take some Greek, culturally Greek people to take food to these folk. Okay. So everyone liked the idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip? Come on, Philip. Stephen, Philip. These guys are amazing. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier covenant, or convent, convert to the Jewish faith, These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. And then it says this, verse seven, God's message continued to spread and the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This and Exodus 18 are the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So why am I reading this today? Well, I'm reading this today because... One of the things that we're going to propose is a transition of the structure of our church away from an elder team over here and a church council over here and instead elders and deacons. Because what, what Acts chapter 6 is, is the origin of what you find then all over the rest of the New Testament, where in every church you have elders and deacons. Stephen and Philip and those boys, they were deacons. Peter and James and those boys, they were elders. And I've often heard it said, oh, you can structure a church however you want. If it's in America, you can structure it according to the sort of uh, English um, democratic processes and follow Robert's rules of order and you make a motion and someone seconds the motion and there's a, cha- there's a chair and a secretary and a vice chair and all that stuff, that's fine. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't use that, but why wouldn't we try the best we can to follow the pattern of the New Testament? You know, if, if possible, why not? especially if there may be wisdom in it that we don't know. My friend, my cousin Jeremy and I were having a conversation about, uh, sometimes we fudge on the details of the Bible, thinking we're making a good choice. And then five years down the road, we look back and we go, oops, I guess that was more important than I knew. It's called Unintended Downstream Consequences. And I feel like we've had some unintended downstream consequences of not even just being structured as a little church the way, by the pattern of the New Testament. So our goal is to try to just go ahead and do it that way. Have elders and deacons and have the deacons serve under the elders, but with the elders. And by the way, deacon and elder are church governmental roles. They have literally nothing to do with God's call on your life in terms of your spiritual gift mix, you could eventually end up as an apostle who planted uh, like churches everywhere and lay, led a whole denomination, but for a season, you served as a deacon, waiting on tables. You c- does that make sense? Elders and deacons are not spiritual gifts. They're just governmental positions in a, a helpful way of, of following the principle of Delegation. Making sure leaders stay focused on the main things so that the organization can stay as healthy as as possible. I think that's about all I want to say today about this. Thanks for listening. Sermon over.